0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This is August Baker. Today I'm speaking with Owen Flanagan, uh, James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University, talking about Owen's 2021 Princeton University Press, How to Do Things with Emotions. The subtitle is The Morality of Anger and Shame, across cultures. Welcome, Owen.
0: Thank you, August. Nice to be here. So, you say that
1: in your multicultural environment, no one is supposed to be allowed to tell you what emotions you can have and which ones are good for you. But it seems to be that's what you do in this book.
0: I guess I don't know if I if I would want to say that in my multicultural no one thinks they can tell you what emotions uh, to have. I think that actually people people, uh, endorse certain ways of what I call doing the emotions, you know, left and right. So people come from all kinds of different traditions. Um, Lots of human life is filled with people telling us that we should not be so shy or not be so angry or not be so sad. Um, So I think those are all different ways uh, in which we, Sometimes, for very good ends, tell each other and teach each other about how things are going for us emotionally. Mm -hmm. My concern in the book actually is not so much to tell people how to do the emotions the right way, you know, not my way. It's that, at least in the case of anger, this is the case I'm most confident about. I feel um, that um, we're stuck in a bad place, you know, at this time, that we live in an angry world. People don't listen to each other well. And in my experience as a teacher and just an ordinary person, um, when, I tell, when I've talked to people about this over the last 10 or 15 years, it's very common for people to say, well, that's just the way the world is now, or that's the way anger works. So part of my overall idea is not to tell people quite uh, uh, my theory of how they do anger, should do anger, but about some of the problems and pitfalls that I think we are in. Uh, in terms of um, uh, living in a culture in which uh, one author calls it the age of anger, Mm -hmm. and that there are some kinds of anger that we might want to reflect on and be more deliberate about um, and do some self-work and some social work on doing them better. So it isn't like I have a formula for how to do anger uh, well or a set of norms, but I think we're in a bad place with respect to anger, and and it would be good to reflect on it guess that's the way i put it uh, robert solomon's uh, talked
1: about the transcendental pretense which as i understand it was the idea that you can look into your inner nature and find out human nature you can look at yourself and find out about human nature right. and um you're not um having any of that you want to look at a lot of different cultures and and uh expand um look at look inside other people's uh way they seem to see the world
0: yeah i think that's fair i mean i don't uh, you know we can get i you know i don't have any objections to sort of thinking about um how uh you know what makes us tick from our own perspective but what i what i've been interested in a while this could just be frankly a uh motivation inside philosophy the discipline of philosophy as you know alfred north whitehead said that um, the safest generalization to make about western philosophy is that it's but a series of footnotes to plato it's kind of an exaggeration but it's an interesting an interesting thing to reflect on because if true what we have is you know about a billion people in the world have been influenced in that uh, particular lineage if you take all of Europe and all of say North America, um, that's about a billion out of 8 billion people. So other people have been brought up in different philosophical traditions. So part of my idea is that sometimes when we're in trouble and we wanna figure out things like, am I responding to some universal feature of human nature, of which I don't doubt there are some, I mean, there are. the emotions seem to be good examples of where we actually get something uh, mother nature through evolution has given us some basic emotions uh, but the evidence looks to me once we expand look to other cultures other philosophical traditions but also just how cultural psychology and anthropology inform us that people do the emotions in many many different ways across culture and some of them might be appealing upon reflection that's that's sort of the the method yes like a. Yeah, so I did what Bob Solomon called the uh, the sort of transcendental pretense that uh, a good a good philosopher could kind of, in some sense, get himself in touch with the nature of his soul, the nature of everybody's soul, and somehow uh, gain transcendental access to the mind of God or whatever. Um, My brand of philosophy is more naturalistic, shall we say, um, looking at cultural psychology, anthropology, and that sort of thing.
1: So one of the things you talk about is. uh... A lot is weird culture. What is weird culture?
0: Good. Um, well, so one one reason I so in t- having been I've been August I've mostly been you know really in philosophy my career, but because of early interests and uh, in things like human nature, I've usually had appointments in psychology departments. And different times I've been more or less involved in psychology, but but one thing that people will tell you who are in Uh, psychology departments is they'll go, they go around joking um, that we better hope that American or North American college sophomores are representative because so much of psychology is based on on information we get from them. And uh, um, so in 2010, around 2010, I don't want to I swear that the date is right. Joe Henrich, who was at that time at University of British Columbia, and he's a psychological anthropologist, and some colleagues did a study in which they asked two questions. Number one, how much of the published work in psychology is based on North American samples? The answer was over 90%. And then the second question they asked was, how representative should we think that North American college sophomores are. And the answer to that is basically they're about the least representative population in the history of humankind. Why? We're Western, we're educated, weird, W-E, industrialized, only 2000 years old, rich and democratic, 200 years old. So the idea is that most of our surmises about the nature of persons Have been an exercise among extraordinarily intelligent people, but nonetheless in the North Atlantic. (laughs) Um, And uh, and so the danger there, and this is, uh, so this gives me, as it were, permission, I think, to think, well, how much variation is there? You know, again, uh, literacy is only 5,000 years old. Modern humans have been around maybe for 240, 250,000 years, but we've only been reading and writing recently. In fact, in Plato's dialogues, you may know this, but, you know, when people ask the question, uh, you know, was Socrates literate? The answer is not obvious to us. Hmm. He could recite any play as every any good educated person could do. He could recite from Homer and uh, 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 Sophocles and, and so on. But uh, he worried, actually, about reading and writing because he said uh, the kids are going to go to hell in a handbasket because they'll lose their memory. that's clearly what he had so so even that's why he never wrote anything never wrote anything (laughs) socrates jesus confucius buddha none of them ever wrote anything it's interesting yeah so good so that's so that's what the weird the, the the weird thing is and i think what what has to happen is we need better and better instruments in in trying to figure out what is universal about human nature and what isn't we just need to do A lot more cross-cultural work to see what keeps turning up and what doesn't. And I think, you know, clearly, what people like Paul Ekman call the basic emotions, you know, following out on Darwin, you know, there are there are some things that just seem to go with the equipment, and you discover everywhere: happy, sad, scared, angry, surprised, disgust, contempt, maybe. Um, But it's a very interesting question. How they get built then once they we come into the world, uh, how we are instructed to express our emotions, whether we're encouraged to express our emotions. some of these things are genderized and racialized I mean it's all it's all quite interesting and quite complicated inside cultures and then across cultures And then um,
1: there's the role of emotions in mora- in morality. Um, you say morality is an invention we create it to meet certain needs especially the need to live convivial social lives yep. and we am i right it, it, that you view us as do, uh, doing things with emotions using emotions to enforce uh, moral structures
0: good yeah all those things so let me let me pull them apart a little bit but that's mm-hmm. it, it, so, the first, the first thing, August, that I, the reason for the motto about how to do things with emotions is that there is one picture of emotions. And we, it's very firmly in philosophy, and you see it to a certain extent in parts of psychology. But this is the idea, it goes back to Plato. So, Plato has this idea <clears throat> that, um, well, we each of us are born with two wild horses inside us. One wild horse is the horse that wants food and sex and water. And the other horse in you is your temperament, which will include, you know, your emotional dispositions, your tendencies to anger or fear and so on and so forth. And the project of human life is you can't control those horses at first. They just, as it were, do their own thing. But what what a human does eventually is he becomes like the charioteer controlling those two horses. And success at life is rational control over those emotions. And then you see this in Descartes, even a similar kind of model, Descartes calls emotions the passions of the soul. And the idea is literally we're passive with respect to these things. So anger is like a reflex. It'll just happen to you. What you can control is whether you act on it or not, or fear will happen to you. You can control whether you act on it or not and so on and so forth for all the emotions. So one of the things I was trying to do in the book is emphasize that there's something useful about that picture, there's no doubt because it can feel that way, but also that emotions are not like pupil contractions or knee jerks. Uh, One can by way of, for example, therapy, work on one's emotions and have them and do them differently. One can uh, um, do self-work or what Confucian or Buddhist philosophers, would talk about mindfulness or self-cultivation. And and then finally, one can do sort of social work in an environment by changing sort of social structures. You know, I think, well, uh, I'm older than you, but maybe not by so much that, maybe you were told this when you were a boy, I was told constraint, restraint of tongue and pen so that was a little advice and it's sort of quaint when you think about it right but if you and i got mad at each other in the olden days we did have to actually well phoning was expensive so we didn't do that regularly so then we might send each other a letter and that takes time to find the find the letter you cool down by the time you write it and then you have to get a stamp anyway and it takes forever and now we have so sometimes there are things that happen, like in the current world, social media, which allow people to just react probably way too quickly than we were designed um, to react, and it has bad results. So these are all different ways in which, so I, so part of the idea is to say, we, we all learn, possibly at our parents' knees, in our preschools, in our schools, rules and regulations about how to do the emotions. Some of the how to do the emotions are enforced by other emotions. That is, when parents tell the kid at the restaurant to use his inside voice, or uh, when you say "stop misbehaving" or "share with your sister." Um, anger does plays a role in uh, helping uh, to build a morality. But um, the the, emo- the, re- the 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 emotions I call moral. It's not because they are used all morally at all. It's just that they're often used inside a morality. So one philosopher um, has this idea that if you look at our morality, the two emotions that he think govern it, when he talks about ours, he means something like North American morality. He thinks it's that it's governed by the emotions of anger and guilt. So anger, if you do something that is morally bad, I have a right to be angry at you. And if you did something morally bad yourself, you have a, a right, and and you should be feel guilty about your action. And and he analyzes his name is Alan Gibbard. He analyzes guilt as anger turned inward. So that's very interesting that it would mean our morality is very much built around, you know, anger, anger, and you could tie it into the God of the Old Testament if you want to, you know, things like that. But yeah, and
1: um, it seems that. I don't know in 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 uh, North America or in the weird population, the idea there's a uh, built-in idea that emotions are internal and individual. Right. And, and that's not uh, shared in other cultures. Um, and at least uh, tell us a bit about you you talk about emotions as things we do, also scripts. Yeah. Syndromes. Tell, tell us about how you view emotions. Now.
0: Well, my idea there. So I think uh, this question that you're asking is a really important one. Um, different, for different purposes, one can analyze uh, these things narrowly or widely is another way I put it. So, and many people, of course, distinguish the feeling, the an emotion from the behavior that comes from the emotion. That's a common thing to distinguish. I I think that leads us to overemphasize the internal phenomenological feeling aspect of the emotions. So one reason I want to have us at least include dispositions to behave is if you think in terms of evolution, why do we even have these emotions, especially given the data, the evidence that we express most, at least the basic ones, facially. Now this matters, okay? well. The reason is is that the the emotions are obviously communicative among people. So if you and I are hiking together and you see my face go scared because I just saw a rattlesnake, that alerts you. And then we both head for the hills uh, together. Uh, If I come for your stash of food or your partner or whatever, back in the beginning of time, you give me the look that tells me there'll be hell to pay. Um, So these things are regulatives, they're they're useful in part because they involve almost always that the feeling does involve a disposition to behave, some kind of disposition. Now, we don't always carry through on the dispositions and we can stop it, Um, but my overall view is that uh, because emotions evolved to get us to do things, um they still serve those functions we're still we're mammals after all and um and what most cultures are trying to regulate uh when we all work together on emotional regulation is both how the emotions feel like sometimes we'll say to each other friends will say i know you're upset but i think you're you're more upset than the situation requires so there i'm trying to help you as my friend with to gain some perspective about how you should be feeling. And we do that a lot to children. We say to the children, you shouldn't be so sad. You know, it's not the end of the world that you didn't get it more than your fair share of M&Ms and so on. And we also do things, we do try to bring the behavioral dispositions under control as well. So, so I had this, um, what I, what I call the wider, the functional um, point of view. It's also based on some recent research on the emotions, which focuses on the following sort of fact. We're all familiar with um, situations in which you might say, you might say uh, I'm, I'm sad about something to a friend. In fact, when you and your friend start talking, your friend might say to you, well, I don't think you're sad so much as you're angry. You might say, oh yeah, that's a good point. I am angry. So this is back to Solomon's point. It isn't like we're always completely definite on which emotion we're feeling until sometimes we see uh, both what caused us to be in that state. So in fact, I'm not sad because I'm actually angry that the friend did that. And I'm disposed to, I think I'm just going to cry, but actually I'm going to cry because I'm angry, not because I'm sad. And, and I think that, the, the the sort of behave, bringing in the behavior helps us see in more real-life ecology the work that emotions do.
1: In, in a footnote, you say the motto, emotions are things we do, awaits refinement. Yeah. And you say um, there are many things we do that are not emotions or standard example of emotions. We climb mountains, spell words, et cetera. One might think that in real life, most of these doings are suffused with Uh, feelings emotions moods so the i guess the idea is when we talk about these emotional scripts we're talking about cases where we're where it's evident that the emotion is driving the doing in some sense but
0: really good question maybe that's why i really still need the footnote because you're totally right that the um everything we do in life is filled with affect you know um now it's an interesting you know Psychologists uh, over world historical time have tried to distinguish between what they might call cognitions or you know thoughts, and on the one hand versus perceptions. I see the apple versus uh, emotions versus moods. But you know even even the thought you know plus two equals four as close as we come to a, like a pure thought. Yeah, if you're taking a test in first grade, <laughs> there's all kinds of emotion and feeling. And um, so I guess I'm, I'm the kind of person who's inclined to say, there's never been a moment in my life that I haven't been in some affective state or another. So I would, I think I, w- I should welcome it as a, uh, um, your suggestion. When I am talking about emotion, the emotions or emotional episodes, I'm thinking of episodes that are sort of really heavily laden with uh, emotional reactivity, something right. like that.
1: Right, right. And clearly, you're going to talk about anger and shame, and both of these are targeting, are used to tell people we don't like what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so they can be used either for morality or... They, there's in some sense disciplinary they may be uh, supporting whatever the hierarchy currently is
0: yeah
1: that's right tell us about the uh the two cultures that you focus on um and how they use uh the bara and I don't know how to say the the name of the other one
0: Because Midnacabang, well, I don't either. I'll leave that out now. I'll I'll describe them as Indonesian and Madagascarian because they're hard to pronounce. But yeah, no, that's uh, thanks for asking that question. So the, um, uh, well, first of all, let me just respond to what you just said because it was so important. Yeah, the I I think what's important to say is really what you emphasize. What you just said, I like that a lot that you know to say that when i call these there's one sense of calling them moral emotions which just means they get used a lot to enforce a more normative or moral order now of course they could be neo-nazis or fascists or uh white supremacists uh, who use anger to keep down the black folk we'll say and they'll even have what are what are called feeling rules by anthropologists that'll be like things like oops aren't they getting uppity, you know? So there's all this kind of, yeah. So, so all emotions can be weaponized uh, by, and used for ill or for bad. So there's no question about that. Um, what I was, um, so in terms of the two c- cultures that I talk about, um, the, that the anthropologists talk about, I sort of have two different ideas running together in the book, which of course, you know, cause you read it. I mean, one is when I'm worried about anger, and the degree to which uh, people are angry, the kinds of anger that are out there that I think are unhealthy, and some that I think are important and healthy, like uh, anti-racist anger, uh, you know, uh, anger for justice, um, that's good. But there's other kinds of anger that are also very common, one call payback anger. That's where you hurt me and I'm zap you right back, hurt you right back. That I think is very, very common. and much more easily controllable than people think. Then there's the other kind of anger I, I also call into question, and you and I've talked about this offline, is, I call it uh, using uh, Carol Tarvis, I think her name is, she calls it the ventilationist view. I mean, it's kind of like a general cultural permission that I'm entitled to my emotions, my emotions will be what they will be and uh, I should just express them when I have them. But that'll mean sometimes when you're in a bad emotional state, I, just by being around you, will be unfortunately the recipient of the negative atmospherics. So that, whereas the first one, payback or revenge anger, I think is bad just because it doesn't improve the situation, um, typically. Um, It does harm to another person's feelings. If you're a good person, you probably shouldn't want to do that too much too often. And the other kind, it just seems self-indulgent. But so that what I did then is sometimes I go to philosophical traditions or theories, which are well worked out by articulate philosophers from the past, like in Stoicism with Seneca or Buddhism,
1: Aristotle,
0: which, or Aristotle, these wise thinkers. But other times I just want to go and look out. the world itself and see what's out there so the two groups that i talk about and i really depend completely on the authors of the uh, relevant paper but these are examples of cultures the indonesian one uh, is uh, one in which the uh, people think that anger is the work of the devil and that therefore people should never be angry uh, including never be angry towards your children now this, there's, there's some other examples of this in the literature there, for example, there's a nice book uh, called Never in Anger by Gene uh, Briggs, which is from the early 70s, which is about Eskimo cultures in which they just, it's just the worst thing you can do is to uh, express anger to other Eskimos, Utku Eskimos. In this culture, the Indonesian one, um, uh, adults just don't get mad at each other and they don't get mad at the children. However, they do use shame to socialize the children. So it's interesting. They will say, you know, oh my God, can you believe what Junior here did? And they will be, uh, you'll call attention to the family about the bad D, um, but uh, anger is prohibited. The other culture I talk about in Madagascar um, is the opposite. They use Really powerful fear-inducing anger to um, uh, socialize the, the youth into um, the norms of life, and like you said earlier, um, you know some of the norms that you're teaching kids are most of them are not nor- moral, or many of them aren't moral. they're sometimes etiquette, mm. you know, just keep take your hat off in school, you know, don't be a slob, um, mm. uh, you know, clean up after yourself. These sorts of things. Um, But those are just two examples and what what was interesting to me about just take the case of the Bara, who are the Madagascar group. Um, They, even though they use anger to socialize the children, they tend not to use it reciprocally adult to adult, or at least this is what's reported in the. So it's used as a socialization tool, but it doesn't play a major role in their life. And it doesn't look like they indulge in revenge, anger on any regular basis, or on the kind of indulgence of pain passing, just because I feel lousy. I mean, Uh there'd be norms against that. Uh So, um, yeah, so those are two examples of what turn out to be lots of different, interesting differences among the way different people do. um, uh, Right.
1: One of the fascinating points was about how a Japanese person will will often respond to anger.
0: Yeah. Now, obviously, in in, uh, places like Japan and America, there's lots of different scripts going on. But the, the Japanese one is fascinating. Yeah. So the general finding is this, that usually, in terms of majority practices, American and German parents meet their children's anger with anger, and it escalates until something happens. I don't know what happens. There is. In Japanese culture, children's anger is met with not engaging. Maybe what behaviorists used to talk about is extinction. Yes. You, just, you don't pick up on it. You kind mm-hmm. of, you know, it's not permissible, so you're not even going to get my attention with this temper tantrum now that's interesting august because in psychology books it's usually said that anger is an approach emotion but japanese people and if you ask americans what do you want to do when you get angry at someone people will say i want to punch the guy in the nose um, if you ask japanese people they'll report the disposition is to leave the room to get out of the unpleasant circumstance yeah. Right. So these these are interesting things, and you can see how they could get embedded early on. They become part of the taken-for-granted background of your life. Everyone does it this way. You're mutually legible to each other this way. You'd be acting weirdly if you were to engage, say, a Japanese child in this, you know, in an angry way. So that's part of the idea of the book, right? Of obviously, you know this, but it's just to say it can be helpful sometimes. When you're trying to find your way out of a practice that's causing you difficulty, if you can find or locate that there are other people doing things a little bit differently than you that might be resources for you to think about. In
1: Absol- how Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the other uh, things, uh, this is a footnote also. Um, the most common American style results in escalating anger, that is, anger being met with anger. Meanwhile, Japanese anger is conveyed um, with a similar ideology of personal blame and responsibility. It does not normally involve giving the other a piece of one's mind, yeah. and it is commonly met with smiling, nodding, and acquiescence. Which I actually can remember in my own case being—I didn't realize that it was cultural until now—but I can remember getting angry at a young Japanese when I was in graduate school, a Japanese yeah. graduate student, and. Yeah, his response was to smile. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there are, yeah, there there are all these different practices. You know, the first time I remember going to uh, East Asia, similar kind of thing, someone said to me, like, you know how in America someone hands you a business card and you just stick it in your pocket? They said, no, no, there you take it with two hands, you read it carefully in front of the person. So these, yeah, and that's, that's interesting that you had that. uh, Well, you know, you see this. I remember your story reminded me once of an interesting 60 Minutes show I saw years ago about um, an African-American family in Brooklyn who were wanting to find the best school for their 10 or 11-year-old son, and um, the best school they found was in Chinatown, and uh, they shipped the kid off to Chinatown, and uh, this particular Chinatown school was mostly the kids of restaurant workers. It was bilingual, English and Chinese. They scored like third highest in English language scores in the state of New York and highest in math scores. And I remember the 60 Minutes interviewer went to the principal and said, you must be so happy. You must want to like clap and jump up and down. And she was just so, no. and she said, we, we're pleased that we're doing our job, but you just couldn't get her to right. have the emotion. That would have been the right emotions to have as an American. It was very refreshing in right. uh, see a very different attitude um, towards, yeah, uh, and, and, um, and you
1: point out that in our multicultures we get to we get to we're a, we're observers of lots of different ways of doing things day to day. Lots of ways of doing emotions.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think we are, you know, although not being um, in that, I mean, I I remember as a boy, I I think I mentioned this in the, you know, where I grew up uh, outside of New York City, uh, where my neighborhood was had Italian Catholics, Irish Catholics, nearby were Black people and near and and, and there were some Jewish people. And um, I just remember when I would go to my friend's mother's house, that's where I would see these different emotional displays, or I'd see, you know, my Italian friends, men would kiss and hug each other and I think we well, don't do that you know yes you, know, so you but every day when you get on like a subway in a big city of london or new york or something you're around people whose well their inner lives are probably very very different not only their beliefs you know maybe their religious beliefs but um but also the way they engage the world um is uh is probably you know pretty different in many cases from from what we have. We have to reach though, you know, a modus vivendi where we can get along and we share, you know, certain level of norms.
1: Right. And, uh, well, why don't we, why don't we go in? So there are lots of types of anger that you, um, you'd like, and there's some that you are saying quite want the reader to question. Could we do less of this? And so the two that, uh, you um are questioning are the one of them is the pain passing anger the other one is the revenge
0: yeah the pain passing is is where you're ventilating you're angry right. you vent on people who didn't cause you to be angry right. you just around them yeah and the other one is the sort of first one is the kind of revenge anger right that's what oh. i think i'm worried about yeah um
1: so I guess and we talked a little bit about this offline, but uh, with the, you know, okay. I mean, I understand this pain passing perfectly. You are really in a bad mood and you're really angry and there's only one person there. And for some reason, I want that person to get angry or upset too. I, I mean, I don't even know. Do you, is there a theory about why people do this?
0: I don't know. Yeah. Well, you said an interesting thing. You want them to get angry too that's that's an interesting one you could just not be you could maybe hope that they don't get angry but you can't stop from making them angry because you're being busy right 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 happy yeah then
1: then there's the um there was this view of right ventilation it's good you don't right at one time that the story the story was oh don't keep your emotions bottled up that'll leave lead to cancer or something um and also this idea that your emotions aren't wrong yeah you know yeah good so i just um when that happens or you point out like um uh it it, with consumer when customer service on the phone right you get angry at them and you you say you've talked to people and say how often does that work out for you and and it doesn't right um but um, it just seems so ingrained. I mean, I mean, my one comment, and, and we talked a little bit about this, is that there is the question about whether the person on the other side is going to be um, affected by it, right? You can try to pass your anger, but if you look at this situation, it's really a two-sided. One thing is, should we ventilate? And the other is, what do we do when someone
0: is ventilating? That's right. Yeah, no, th- th- you know, and, and what you just put it beautifully, because these things are so unbelievably complicated, because like you say, I mean, it takes two to tango, and whether the other person is is good at doing what you want them to do or not, I mean, there's, so we know there's that people can get into. I think that the, you, you just said a whole bunch of things that I think are really interesting. And I like the way you put this, emotions can't be wrong. That That is one piece of ideology that at the one level, there's part of me that wants to say, that's right, just accept you're going to have whatever emotion sort of feeling you're having, then you know, you're know you going to have that feeling. That's, that's the way it goes. Um, on the other hand, that can lead to a certain kind of self-indulgence because we all know that sometimes even for ourselves, we will judge that the emotion is, as it were, ridiculous. Right. I don't know. You know you you oh, yeah, you, so you know you know, you just think, "Oh my God, why do I you know, I just uh was on my way, way to the party and I just scratched my newly polished shoe. No one in the history of the world would ever notice that, but I am shit crazy, you know, insane, serious, yeah. and so, in those cases, we do think that we're having the more you know an incorrect response, and we want to bring ourselves back to center, um I do think that, um. And, and there are emotions. I mean, I really do get, you know, both just speaking personally. I mean, I understand, you know, schadenfreude is an interesting emotion, right? right. First, you know, brought my dad's business down, and now I hear he's dying of a painful cancer. Well, I get it. I get yeah. the impulse, and it probably is, you know, evolutionarily hard to completely overcome. You know, the reason the Old Testament is so compelling, Lex Colonus, Eye for an Eye, is because it speaks to a fundamental, fundamental aspects of our emotional nature. So one doesn't want to ask, call upon us to be entirely different than our nature makes us be. But I do think that sometimes, like I say, I mean, I think the, you know, of those two kinds of anger that I, that I am concerned about, I think that the modern world makes the world in which I grew up in of restraint and tongue and pen, now the fingers can immediately respond to any latest outrage with a further outrage. So, you know, you and I talked earlier about Americans meet anger with anger and escalate. Well, we have technologies now that uh, they're, they're making worse, maybe a natural tendency that we have. So, you know, I don't know how um how to get control of that but as the kids say knowing is half the battle um right So,
1: um, I you know we're, we've used up so much time but I, I let's talk about shame um you think that shame gets a bad rap now you're against shaming yeah um but you see a um a conceptual difficulty in the way people view shame. I guess shame is usually, okay, well, one point is we can talk about shame and get into lots of nuanced discussions about the difference between shame and embarrassment, but it is kind of interesting that most people use them synonymously. So it's uh, it's not clear uh, what we're doing when we're talking about these things as different in a nuanced way, if people don't know that, but anyway, when people talk about shame, they talk about uh, it's partly um, a violation of a, a of a community or of a of a group, yeah. and that it's um, um, <sighs> I think often people think of it as something that leads to stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it seems like maybe the threat is there of some sort of ostracism, of or some sort of you're not allowed in the group. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I have also heard that the difference between shame and embarrassment is that shame is you think that you are a bad person overall. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought you made a very interesting point that that doesn't seem to that doesn't necessarily follow at least that last one.
0: Yeah, good. Uh, you bring out all these issues really nicely. Yeah. So one, um, So first of all, the, the, the first thing you said is exactly right. A lot of people, I mean, again, maybe we're just gonna think at first here about people like you and me, well-educated uh, white men in America or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, If you if you ask around like what how we distinguish shame and guilt shame and embarrassment we're not that good at it although I think you pick up on exactly the right point if I'm embarrassed I'm just kind of embarrassed you're not going to ostracize me though I mean if I you know um, whereas if if I have reason to be more than embarrassed but be ashamed you might actually kick me out of the club okay the other thing that it but 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 there is a lot of overlap and there's also overlap between shame and guilt the way Americans actually use it. Although the official theory about shame, because of what you said about the ostracism possibility, is that it involves something like um, uh, thinking I'm a bad person overall. And and the reason I got interested in this one is a little different from how I got interested in anger. Because I've been working a lot, August, on um, just different cultures, philosophies, I've been aware for a long time that you never see in Chinese philosophy or Indian philosophy discussions of what we would call guilt. You always see discussions of what we would call shame. And I was also aware there that shame is almost universally in those cultural traditions, which maybe modern people in China and India are heir and heiresses to. And that would constitute about 3 billion people on Earth. So this would be, you know, so I kept my eye on that. And I kept thinking, well, they don't think of it as involving I'm a bad person overall. And, but you're right that in Western psychology, um, it, it tends to carry that connotation. Part of what my, what I thought I could do here was to show How much of an outlier view that was in the rest of the world. And then even to reflect on how, if we feel like if we use the word shame uh, in socializing children, or even on our own case, like the Pope, Pope Francis this morning in the New York Times. I mean, he didn't do it in the New York Times. In the New York Times, they reported that Pope Francis apologized to um, uh, Canada. For these schools that they had, that the Catholic Church ran 70% of them for Indian displaced children, Native American children. And the Pope said he felt great shame. Um, and now the Pope isn't saying, I feel like I'm a bad person overall, right. or the Catholic Church is bad overall. And I think in the same way, when, you know, when if a parent teaches a child that, you know, um, they need to learn how to share the Legos, A, it'll be more fun, but B, that's what a nice, good child does, it shares. Um, and they should be ashamed if they don't share. They're not saying you're a bad person overall. They're just saying, you know, this disposition of not sharing or being selfish is something which we want to encourage you to get over. So what I, so, and, and so that's sort of on one side of things, just the the, the mere fact that an emotion which we think causes addiction, anorexia, uh, bulimia, uh, suicide attempts, uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, we think that because we've defined it as I think I'm a bad person overall. Right. But I don't think most people use shame that way or think of themselves when they feel ashamed about something. I just don't think that's the common usage.
1: No, I thought that was a very, uh, very well taken. Uh, and I guess the idea would be you can use shame say in, in with your children saying you know when you do this it discredits our whole family mm. not that that means you're bad forever
0: exactly
1: this here but, did yes. have the effect of discredit it 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 makes it implicates me it, it and yeah. our whole family. That doesn't mean, that does not necessarily mean you're bad forever. You can next yeah. tomorrow is fine. And in an hour, you'll be fine.
0: That's right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, I think that's a really nice way to put it because that is always what some people will say. Well, you know, and you do see, obviously, you know, I'm not asking for us to be like Confucian people. You know, there was that story about the uh, ferry that sank with a lot of school children and it's off Korean coast about 10 years ago and you know the entire the principals at the school the mayor of the town the owner of the ferry company I mean it was what we would call an accident but way too a lot more people than we would think should have take responsibility but your example of the fact that my child's behavior at the friend's house on the overnight reflects on me it just is is simple to say it's true yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, and, and you've informed the child about the scope of the problem, not that it's a bad person overall. Right. And then my hope, this is the, and then this is where I'm reaching with this whole thing is that I did, you know, one of the motivations, the practical motivation of the shame part of the book was both to bring out this general intellectual point, but also to wonder a little bit about how it was and how unfortunate it is for especially young people that there are so many people who live as it were shamelessly and play it fast and loose with the truth or with their their role as a public servant. And I was thinking specifically of recent politicians, uh, current politicians. Uh, and um uh, thinking how, that, shame, yes. how do you know shame, sir. Yes. Have you no shame. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, it isn't just that someone like Trump should feel guilty about the bad things he did and playing it fast and truth loose with the truth and with people's lives and being a narcissist, but he should feel ashamed. And, you know, in the sense of try to work on himself, right. not to get any leverage on him, but right. that would be perfectly appropriate. Um, and even in that case, much as I have uh, 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 very negative feelings towards that individual, I don't have to think that he's a horrible, horrendous human being. It might even be fun to play golf with him if I knew how to play golf. Right. But, um, but that there's a lot of work he needs to do on himself. Um, and uh, yeah. And, so that- and
1: also, I think one of the things that's interesting is this is not a book about here. It, you may like a self help book where you as an individual have issues with anger and shame and let's try to fix them. You're really talking about a, more of a macro thing, a collective thing, and serving as role models not just, yeah, not just, in fact, a cultural self-help.
0: Right. Well, you and I know, I mean, we were, we're old enough to remember there were people like Martin Luther King Jr. and the Kennedys, and, you know, these people with warts and all, Eugene McCarthy. I mean, there were all these people who were people who really were worthy of our, you know, worthy of role modeling. I just don't see that the younger generation has that and what they see in terms of especially the display of these emotions is emotions are just really well especially in the, just take the anger side you know basically you got to be a real quick reacting system a person does and zap back every time you get zapped and you know i also think there's even you know you could do this with other emotions too i mean there's a lot of cowardice i'm o- the only social media i'm on is um, facebook but i hear this well i guess i'm on twitter too but i don't really know how to use that but i but you notice a lot of cowardice in the following way people say about other people things they would never say to their face
1: oh, of course yeah
0: and i think that's atrocious i mean especially you could say it to their face now i dare you um so that, yeah. that would restore you know that that kind of Uh, knowing that if you have something really negative to say about another human being about what they did or said, say it to them. Um, But from a cowardly pose of just uh, because people will say much nastier things uh, and uh, hurt the reputations of people uh, through the third person form that they wouldn't say to a person's face. Right. And that's that.
1: yeah that's that ventilation i'm gonna get it out of me out right right. um owen it's been a real pleasure talking to you i I really loved reading this book it pissed me off and provoked me and in different places and other places i really agreed with it it was quite a quite a read and i should say we didn't get to talk about your own but you talked about your own personal experiences with shame and and um it was i i really appreciate you writing the book um me a lot, and I was a pleasure speaking with you.
0: Thank you so much, August. You're a great interviewer, and uh, it was a great opportunity to talk. Appreciate it.